In a sense, this is kind of like, you know, how in a movie where you have a, a glimpse of the future in the midst of, you know, the plot line. This is kind of what's happening. We're getting a, a, a sneak peek or a taste uh, of what the Gospel of Mark is really all about and what it's pointing us to. Um, so with that, uh, let's read Revelation 21, 1 through 8. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, Sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Father, we come before you today grateful that you have brought us out of our everyday life uh, to worship you, that you have called us by your word to worship you today, Lord. And and now we have the opportunity, after singing and praying, to hear you speak to us from your word. So I pray that you even now prepare our hearts and our minds that we might hear and understand your word, that we might be encouraged by it, that we might leave here with new faith or strengthened faith, encouraged and with a hope that is steadfast because it is anchored in your Son, Jesus. It's in His name that we pray all these things today. Amen. That's okay. Um, So, I think it might be confusing as to why we're choosing Revelation 21, uh, especially uh, as a a one-off sermon in the the midst of a sermon series. and I, and I know that a lot of times we tend to uh, avoid the book of Revelation. At least I know I do, right? Um, not just in, in, in listening to sermons, but in, in reading it ourselves and trying to understand it and hearing popular thought about how to understand Revelation. Um, it's, full of, it's full of imagery that's hard to understand. It's, it's full of, of numbers that don't quite seem to make sense. And, uh, and so I want to, to start by just kind of suggesting that we kind of fix our train of thought in, in how we should interpret interpret Revelation, interpret any text or anything that we're reading, right? 
Uh, and, and one thing that you have to consider that often isn't considered with Revelation is the original audience. Who was John writing to? Why was he writing uh, this particular text? Why was he given these visions to encourage the church? Um, John was writing in the first century to Christians who were suffering terrible persecution. And he was writing to a church who was familiar with Scripture. He was writing with a, through to a church that knew, either through growing up in the synagogue or growing up in the church themselves, uh, they, they knew the Old Testament. They knew the Bible well, probably. You know, they knew the story of, of Genesis. They knew the story of the fall of creation. They knew the story of the Israelites. Um, they knew the prophets and the writings. And so, as John is, is giving these visions, these visions are just full and rich of Old Testament imagery. Uh, that would make sense to them, that would connect with them, that would give them hope. John is writing at the end of a long line of build-up throughout Scripture, beginning with creation, the fall of man in the garden, and ending with the restoration of man through Christ in the New Testament. And now, these New Testament saints that he's writing to, that have been saved, that have been restored from their fallen state through Christ Jesus, they are facing terrible persecution. They're being thrown in gladiator rings with lions. They're being crucified alive. They're even being covered in pitch, in tar and oil, impaled on stakes, and then burned alive to light the Roman roads at night like lamps. This is their reality. And all because of their faith in Christ. And so John is writing this very book to give them hope, to encourage them, and John just isn't giving them any hope. But he's, he's giving them the one hope that can sustain them. Right? He's not just saying, if you can just make it to Sunday, maybe you'll feel a little relief as we gather together. No, he's saying, if, if you can just hold on to the end, then what is coming, what we're looking at in this text today, is the greatest thing, the most encouraging thing, the thing that sustains all our hope. And that very same message that he gave to them, it very much so applies to us today, right? So as, as we, and I, I know I, I say this all the time, as we look at the world around us and we see the brokenness and the hurt and the pain and our own despair, we see that things are clearly not right. This message today is meant to give us hope as well, just as much as it was meant to give them hope. So as we look at this text, I urge you all, to behold the marvelous hope set before us and to keep pushing on in this life in faith. So my, 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 I have three points, so that makes it a good sermon, right? Uh, and they're easy to catch. They all start with behold, have hope. Um, so they're, they're clearly flagged, so you can write them down. Not that you need to, but behold, have hope. The dwelling place of God is with man. I think there are few illustrations that can provide for us an example of, of what it's like for, for two people to dwell together in union uh, greater than that of marriage. And so throughout the Old Testament, God uses marriage to show Israel how he relates to his people, right? Them as, as his bride, almost always as the bride who is unfaithful, and him as the faithful husband. And then he does the same thing with the church. And so he begins this illustration by using that uh, illustration of, of how, 
how we are to, will one day dwell with God, right? And so as I, I read this, I, it reminds me of one particular day in my life. There are a few days in my life that I remember as well as July 25th, 2009. I know Madison's with the kids right now, um, but, but she remembers it as well. It's the day I wed her, the day I wed my bride. I remember the excitement, the buildup in the morning as I longed for that moment when I knew she would come down the aisle. And then at last, that final, moment finally arrived. Right? She, I had my groomsmen on my left side, had the bridesmaids on my right, the pastor right next to me. And I hear the first note of that song that means she is coming down the aisle. Uh, for us, it was Here Comes the Sun by the Beatles. And so <laughs> as that kicked off, I remember uh, you know, my heart just racing in my chest. I remember the double doors at the end of the aisle swing open opposite the pulpit. And there she was, my bride, adorned for me on her, her wedding day, coming to me at last so that we could unite as one. Through my eyes... I think there are few things in this life that were as beautiful as Madison on that day and the splendor of that moment. And the vision given to John draws on that. Here we see the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And the emphasis here is strong. The bride is clearly coming for her bridegroom, coming to unite herself with him. And the wedding is about to occur. And who is the bride? It's us, right? The holy city, New Jerusalem, it's, it's God's people having been made holy by Christ himself. Gathered together, adorned in the whitest of robes, washed clean by the blood of Christ, and now coming down out of heaven to be with her bridegroom. John is using one of the most beautiful images here to show us what is to come, to show the church a union with God that is unparalleled to anything else we've experienced in this life, much like that of a union between a husband and a wife. And John is also connecting the imagery of his vision to the rest of Scripture. He writes in verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Think back with me to the beginning of time, to the beginning of Scripture. Where did man first reside? In the garden. And what, what was so special about the garden? The most precious, I mean, there are so many things that were special about the garden, but the most special thing, the most precious thing about the garden was the fact that Adam and Eve were with God, that they dwelled with God in a way that mankind has not been able to dwell with God since then, right? That there was no mediator between them and God, but they were with Him. But after Adam and Eve sinned, after they did the very thing that they were told not to do, them and everything else in this earth was cursed. The life they had in the garden was no more and they were constantly separated from God. Here, John is reminding the church, he's reminding us that the old things in this day will pass away. The new heavens and the new earth are here. And then he says, and the sea was no more. And for most people, that's like 
the sound of a you know record like screeching to a stop as someone just <laughs> slams their hand on the turntable, right? It's what what does he mean by that? Because I know I've heard basically two different interpretations jokingly. Either if you if you love the ocean, then this is the worst verse in the Bible. Because why in the new heavens and new earth would there be no sea? Like one of the most beautiful things of God's creation. Or if you're like a friend of mine who absolutely is terrified of the ocean, who's afraid of everything, sharks, stingrays, jellyfish, drowning, anything you could imagine, this is the best verse in the Bible, right? This is the best thing about the new heavens and new earth. So, is John really saying, you know, kind of randomly, after, after talking about the new heavens and new earth, yeah, in the new heavens and new earth, no, no worries, there won't be any ocean. Or is he saying... It won't be so bad. I know no ocean, but there will probably be something better. So just trust us. No, no, no. Or is he saying something different? Is he pointing back to something uh, in the history of Israel uh, that would be a reminder of up until Christ, probably one of the most significant examples of salvation? I would say, I think it's the latter. I, I think... I think he's pointing back to the Exodus experiment, experience. Uh, in the Old Testament, and often because of the Exodus experience, the sea represents all that is bad. It represents Satan, sin, death, evil. Even in the book of Revelation, in the inventions that John has, the sea represents these things. It's, it's this place of turmoil that the beast comes out of. But in Exodus 14, we see that just when the sea was going to be certain demise for Israel, right? As, as they're facing deliverance on the other side, if they can just make it through the sea, Egypt is, is closely closing in behind them in their chariots with all their weapons and trained army. God does the very thing that only God can do. He overcomes the sea with his power. And in that moment, the sea was no more. They literally walked through on dry ground. Here God is declaring the same deliverance to the church, to us. He's saying, and the sea was no more. Sin, gone. Satan, gone. Death, it's gone. Salvation is secure in the new heavens and new earth. And to, to continue to emphasize this point, John doesn't stop with the imagery of the bride, or the visualization of the new heavens and new earth, of the sea being gone, he goes on to explicitly remind his audience of what all this is pointing forward to, to the behold statement. He says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. What is it that we lost in the garden? Being with God. Fellowship with God. Relationship with God. And, and throughout the scriptures we see that, that God is, is promising that one day, for those that have faith in Him, for His people, He will be their God and they will be His people. And we have glimpses of that in the tabernacle when He dwells with Israel in the temple when he dwells again with Israel in the holiest of places. 
in Christ. We have God incarnate, and we have the Holy Spirit dwelling with us. But this, this opportunity to dwell with the triune God in all His glory still awaits us. And yet here, that promise throughout Scripture becomes true. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. And John goes on to remind us of the implications of this, because they are significant. In this day, all the hardship of this life, all the pain, all the suffering, all the death and weak faith, all those things that are a result of the separation from God in the fall, John says this, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. You see, separation from God left brokenness. It left pain. And we know this. We see this in our lives, in our relationships, in our marriages, in our households, in everything. But with perfect restoration with God comes perfect and complete healing. So behold, have hope. The dwelling place of God is with man. Behold, have hope. He is making all things new. I know this can even be a bit confusing. What, what does that mean? Not only is God uniting us with Him, but He is also making all things new. We've seen throughout Scripture that God made the world and the heavens and everything in them. He spoke and they came into existence. We see in the New Testament, in the Gospel of Mark and in the others, that Jesus speaks and He controls the world around Him. Now here, once again, God is speaking, and in doing so, He is making all things new. Now, God isn't just putting us back in the garden here. He's not just putting us back to where Adam and Eve were. If He was, that would be pretty awesome. We, we, We must admit that, right? We'd be with God. But God is doing something that is so much greater than that. In this image. Here God isn't just recreating the old heavens, the old earth. He is making all things new. This isn't just a return to the garden. This is something different entirely. Something far better. Imagine with me all the ways in life that you have been faced with discouragement. That you have sought fulfillment and purpose and the things around you and come up a void. The reality is, and we know this because we live in the fallen world, that the things of this world will inevitably let you down. They aren't the hope that is set before us in this passage. They're not the very thing that can keep us pushing on. But John is pointing us forward to what's to come. And it's not by going back to the garden to be where Adam and Eve were. You see, in the garden, Adam was with God, 
but he hadn't earned new life with God. That was set before him in the tree of life. But in order to gain the tree of life, he had to abstain from eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. He had to trust God wholly, perfectly. And for an amount of time that we don't know how long it would have been, but, but he had to do it. And eventually, he would have gained that tree of life. But we know that Adam failed. He wasn't able to do it. Eventually, he sinned. He ate the fruit. And the world was cursed. But here in the text, this is different. All things are new. The hope is once again before the church. But, where Adam had to earn it, and he failed... Christ earned it for us. That's how everything is new in the new creation. See, in Revelation 22, if we look further ahead, we see that those who have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb, there's those who have trusted in Christ for their salvation, it's us, the church, they have access to the very tree of life that Adam could not gain on his own. And it's now ours because Christ gained it for us. It's not that we're given a clean slate in the new heavens and new earth. It's not that we're put back in the garden and we now have, once again, a chance to gain this tree of life. No, the pressure is gone. It's lifted off of us. See, Romans 5 tells us that Jesus is the second Adam. And as the second Adam, where Adam failed to gain this new life, Christ has already gained it for us. So this new creation begins with the tree of life. And it's ours already, guaranteed for us, for all things are made new. And the, the imagery of the tree of life is picked up in a, another imagery in Scripture, uh, which we can see in John 4, we can see it in Revelation 22, uh, and, it, and it's this imagery of living water. Right? In John 4, there's a woman at a well that Jesus comes to, and he speaks to her. and She's both spiritually and physically thirsty. And he promises her a living water, a new water, one that would provide the ultimate refreshment and would cause whoever drank from it to never thirst again. This refreshment from the river of life is the very thing that is set before Adam in the tree of life. We see it in Revelation 22 flowing around the tree of life. And it is here in the new heavens and new earth. It is new and it is for us. So this is our hope. So behold, have hope. He is making all things new. Behold, have hope. It is done. How can these things be? How could John speak of them as if they not only will be, but they already are? Why, for us, for the church that he was writing to, it would seem like something that was far off. It's not, not necessarily in this physical life that we experience it fully. And yet, Christ says, as He's sitting on the throne, it is done. It should remind us of His words on the cross as He gave up His very soul and cried out, it is finished. So what is finished? How could he say that to us? How could we know that these things are accomplished? Well, lest we forget, he reminds us who he is. He says, as it follows, I am the Alpha and the Omega. So the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. 
So it's kind of like he's saying, and many of you are familiar with this term, Alpha and the Omega, in Scripture, but it's like he's saying, I am the A and the Z, the first and the last. And maybe to emphasize it even more, or maybe even in predicting that one day there would not be Greek speakers reading it, he clarifies. So he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. See, God is not like us. He doesn't exist in time. He doesn't count seconds and days and years. But He is outside of time. He has always existed and He will always exist. And for the first century Christians who went through many agonizing trials and it felt as if the end couldn't come quick enough, death couldn't come quick enough, when seconds for them seem like hours, God reminds them, He reminds us, it is done. I've already delivered you. It is finished. These things that I'm pointing you forward to, to anchor your hope, have been accomplished already. Can you imagine a greater comfort? To know that everything that you're facing, in the grand scheme of things, in the cosmic sense, in God's timing, it's already over. He's already delivered you. He's already delivered us. For them, they were facing hordes of Roman soldiers coming through their village, knocking on their doors, taking their friends and them into the streets to crucify them. And Jesus reminds them, He reminds us, Fear not. I've already taken care of it. Fear not. It is done. And then he goes on to remind them what is done. John records, To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. That's the living water from John 4. The living water that flows around the tree of life in Revelation 22. And it's freely given out. It's the water of life that sustains all thirsts. That secures all endurance that satisfies all longings, desires, and passions. This water has been made available, and in it those who drink are able to conquer the trials of this world and live for the world to come. You see, it's in this drinking from the spring of the water of life that we as Christians are able to endure, to hold fast, to conquer. And how? Well, it's not because we do anything in and of itself to actually conquer, but because Christ is the conqueror, right? He is the one who's conquered sin, death, destruction, despair. He's conquered the curse. And he writes, The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. We can conquer because the water of life is given to us without payment. And that's a good thing, my friends, because we couldn't afford the payment. But just because it was given to us without payment doesn't mean that it didn't cost, that someone didn't pay for it. We know from the Bible that Christ paid the price for this water when he went through hell on the cross, when he conquered Satan on the cross so that we might never thirst again. It's on the cross that Jesus felt the ultimate thirst in our place, giving us his own life so that we could freely drink from the spring of the water of life. Now, Tim Keller 
is a, a minister in our denomination. If you, if you haven't read any of his stuff or listened to any of his sermons, uh, you're at least familiar with him because Mike regularly references him from the pulpit. Um, that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. Uh, and he has a great story that he tells uh, in light of this passage. It, he, he recalls uh, Reverend Donald Barnhouse. He, he was a pastor of a church in Philadelphia. And Dr. Barnhouse married the love of his life at a young age. And they had one daughter, Margaret. Now sadly, before Margaret had even turned ten, tragedy struck their family. And her mother died. Now Dr. Barnhouse and Margaret were grief-stricken. They were struggling to process the death of their mother and their wife. And Margaret especially found it hard to grieve. Hard to understand her mother's passing. And Dr. Barnhouse found it difficult to explain to his daughter what had happened. One day, they were walking down a street. And a truck barreled by them so close that it didn't hit them, but it scared Margie greatly. And so she jumped into her father's arms and shrieked. And Dr. Barnhouse whisked her away. And he said that in that moment, he... He found the perfect words to say, the perfect opportunity to speak to Margie about her mother's death. So he said to her, he said, it's okay, it's okay. You know how sad we are about mommy? Yes, she said, we're sad about mommy. Let me just ask you a question, he said. Did the truck hit you? No, she said. Well, what did hit you? It was just the shadow of the truck, and that's okay. You see, Margie, death didn't hit your mother either. Only the shadow of death hit her. Death hit Jesus. Because death hit Jesus, and we believe in him now, the only thing that can hit us now is the shadow of death. And that is nothing more than our entrance into glory, Margie, just like your mother's. It's in this, this truth, that we find our inheritance, that we find our heritage. Death hit Jesus, and in that, we gained everything. In that, the church that John was writing to gained everything, and they need not fear death. And we are reminded again, He will be our God, and we will be His sons. When it says that, it's talking specifically about Christ. But in our union with Christ, as we are united with Christ through His conquering death, through His triumph on the cross, we receive that inheritance. We become sons of the living God. We become brothers and sisters. And so we can confidently say with Jesus that He will be our God and we will be His sons. So behold, have hope, it is done. Death hit Jesus. And we still have verse 8, right? And, and it's easy to, to, when you're preaching this, to just want to avoid verse 8. Because it's, it's terrifying, frankly. Uh, but my plea to you today, as we consider all of this, is that you have hope. In this life, you remain faithful Christ, faithful to his bride, 
faithful to Parkside. That you recognize, too, that, that we're all sinners, right? That there once was a time, maybe even now there is a time in your life where you were a slave to sin. A time in which one, some, or maybe even all of these sins, in verse 8, applied to you. It says, as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. But now, that is not true of you. Now you are free from those former sins, and just as Christ has been made new, as the first fruits, so too will you be made new. At the same time, we recognize that, that this day that is spoken of here, that is meant to give us hope and what's to come in the future, is not just a day of hope, but it's also a day of terror for those outside of Christ. Right? It's a day of judgment. Instead of the living water that quenches all thirst, there's the lake of fire, which does quite the opposite. Right? And it I recognize that there might be some here today who could look at this list and say, no, I've never been guilty of those things. Or I'm not guilty of those things now. I can somehow, maybe, secure my own salvation in my own works, right? In my own steadfast conviction that I can keep going in this life. Maybe you don't believe any of this narrative at all. Well, I would challenge you, at the very least, to consider the words of Christ in Matthew 5-7 through 7 in his Sermon on the Mount, when he tells us that those who even have an angry thought, those that even have look at someone with sexual intent, that they're guilty of murder, that they're guilty of adultery, there is no perfect obedience to be found in ourselves. And if there is such a thing as heaven, if there is this hope set before us, which the scriptures clearly argue, and it is only gained by righteousness. If it's not found at you, it has to be found in someone else. If left to our own, if Christ had not said it is done on our behalf, we would be the ones being thrown into the lake of fire, experiencing the second death, a death that is quite the opposite of being united with God for all eternity, a death apart from the presence of God for all eternity. So consider the hope of this passage, right? Which is not found in any one of these. I mean, it is. But it's found in all of these points together. It is done. All things have been made new. The dwelling place of God is now with man. How? The resurrection of our Lord Jesus. You see, He was the first to pass away and be made new. And if the resurrection really happened as we confess in his word, as we have recorded in the Gospels and another, a number of historical accounts outside of Scripture, if it really happened, then everything else is following in his footsteps. Everything else will be made new. One way or another, whether united with God for all eternity, drinking from the river of life, living in the new creation where there is no mourning, no tears, no sadness, no sickness, no death, or it will be 
forever in torment in the lake of fire. But everything is being made new like Christ. And it is in the resurrection of Christ that we can finally say and have hope. It is done. All things have been made new. The dwelling place of God is with man at last. Let us pray. Father, it is our prayer today that you will anchor our hope in your Son, Jesus. That we, Lord, as we hear of the new heavens and new earth, as we hear of dwelling with you for all eternity, uh, as we hear of being separated from all the bad things of this world and all the very evident ramifications of the curse, Lord, and from our own sinfulness and weak faith. Lord, might we be encouraged. Might our faith be strengthened. And might we be able to hold fast in this life, Lord. Because your son Jesus is steadfast and his faithfulness to us is bright. It's in Christ's name that we pray all these things today.